1: Psalmist says, "O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together." And I've often thought about that word "magnify." It means to make greater. And I've wondered, together with you, numbers of times, how can we make an infinitely majestic God greater? But we can't, and that's not really what magnify means. Neither can we glorify God in any sense. We can't add to his glory. But just as in the 17th century when Galileo pointed his telescope up to, to look at Saturn and saw the rings, he didn't make Saturn any bigger at all. He didn't actually do anything to it. But it appeared far greater to him. And he was able to study the details and have his breath taken away because of the instrument of his telescope. And so for me, I think the word of God is like a telescope. And they were able through exegesis, through study of words, of nouns and verbs and paragraphs, to see through a, a glass darkly, not clearly and perfectly, like we will someday. But we can see the glory of Christ through the word of God. And that's what I want to do with you together again today i want to magnify christ i want to make christ appear greater to you and to me i would say there's not a person not a man a woman or a child that has come in here with a proper estimation of jesus even if you've been a believer and have walked in a healthy way for dozens of years even decades all of us underestimate jesus and it's my privilege to help you estimate him a little bit more nearly what he is worth so that you can see the greatness and the majesty of Christ. And I, I think there are a few chapters like Revelation 5 to do that for us. We're going to see the greatness of Christ. We're going to try to follow, as we began last week, to follow the Apostle John on that spirit flight that he took from the island of Patmos, the rocky island of Patmos, off the, uh, the uh, coastline of modern day Turkey in the Aegean Sea. He was in the Lord, uh, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice behind him inviting him, even commanding him to come up here. And he saw a doorway uh, standing open in heaven. Revelation 4, 1 and 2 speaks of this spirit flight. After this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So I want to take you, as we began last week, to to follow John by the ministry of the Spirit, by the ministry of the Word of God, to follow him up through the the inner eye of of faith into that heavenly courtroom, into that heavenly throne room, and to see the throne of God himself, to see Almighty God seated on his throne. And then beyond that today, to see the, the resurrected, glorified Christ in his victory over sin and death there in the throne room of God. So we saw this last week, a scene of surpassing greatness of Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, seated on his throne. And surrounding that throne, last week, Revelation 4, 24 other thrones with elders seated on them. And there are four living creatures and and these beings surround the throne and are continually, day and night, worshiping Almighty God. And the focus last week, Revelation 4, was on worship of God the Creator. Worthier are you, the Creator of all things, because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. So that was last week, worship for God the Creator. This week we're going to see worship for Christ the Redeemer. And so Revelation 4 and 5, I really want you to take them as one vision taken together. And together they bring us a a, a very helpful theological division of God the Creator, Christ the Redeemer, and understanding the worth and value of God in that sense. And as we look at Revelation 5, four things are going to focus our attention today. First, the scroll in the right hand of God. Secondly, the proclamation of the mighty angel about that scroll. Thirdly, the Lamb receiving the scroll, and then fourthly, the honor and glory given by all, ultimately all creation to the Lamb because of it. That's what we're going to look at, and we're just going to follow those things. We're going to begin with the scroll. Look at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. Now, the Greek word for scroll is biblos, from which we get a Bible or bibliography, a book, we could say, but most likely it was a scroll rolled up. And the scroll, we're told, is in the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne, on the right hand of the creator God, the ruler of the universe. This is, as we saw last week, none other than God Almighty, God the Father, God the creator of the ends of the earth. And he sits on a throne proclaiming his sovereign right to rule over all the universe. He's absolutely sovereign over heaven and earth. And he's sovereign over the events of heaven and earth. He rules over all things. And not only that, we saw last week, not only did he originally create all things, but by his will and by his word they are continually upheld in their creation. It's a continual decision and commitment that the creator God has to keep them existing. There's no independent existence from this creator God, even now. Now, this scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne must be a precious thing indeed, because it's in his right hand. It must be incredibly valuable, and because in Revelation 5, it's the focus of so much attention. Now, we're told that there's writing on both sides. This, in some way, is revealed to John. We don't know how else we would know it, especially if the scroll were rolled up. You know how like in a dream, you can just know things are true. You don't know how you know, but you just know that it's true. And so maybe that's how it is, or maybe in some way he can see the writing on both sides and the seals are, are done some other way. It's hard for us to picture this way. But this uh, writing on both sides, you get the feeling that it's a complete account. It's completely covered in writing. It's a complete and total account, a full document. There seems to be no room to add to it. Since it's most certainly the writing of God, there's also no right to take away from it. We cannot add to it. We cannot take away from it. And we're told that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. The seal always implies kingly authority or the authority of a, of a ruler. It implies ownership, authority. And in this sense, it forbids anyone who does not have the right to break the seals. And there are seven seals, we're told. So this is a complete sealing of the scroll. What's inside, therefore, is to us, at the beginning at least, a complete mystery. The number seven, a number of perfection, a number of completeness, so it's completely sealed. No one can pry up a corner of it, look inside, as you could imagine some servant did back in the day, trying to open up a letter that he had no right to read and just wants to know what's inside, maybe at least get a couple of words, and then smoothing it so the master can't tell that he did it. But well, there's no way to do that. This is completely sealed. And based on what happens in Revelation 6 through 8, with the seven seals when they're open, the scroll is probably in some sense progressively sealed. There's a sense of a breaking of a seal and an opening up of the scroll, and so a little is revealed. And then another seal is broken and a little more. And so we'll get to that, God willing, uh, beginning next week. So perhaps it's this way that the scroll is rolled up and sealed, rolled up a little more and sealed, etc. That's possible. We don't know for sure. All right, so what is this scroll? What is its significance? Well, we don't really know. As, as with the book of Revelation, there's so many symbols, and there are things there, and they're not, we're not usually told. Sometimes we're told the significance of the signs or symbols. Sometimes we're not. Uh, one uh, commentator who I think is, is trustworthy says it's the title deed for the earth. It's like a, a sense of Ownership. Uh, others relate it to, because of what's unfolding, the unfolding redemptive plan of God resulting in Christ coming to own the earth or a rulership over it. I think either way is fine. So this is the sovereign plan of God written out in his hand before the creation of the world. It is his predestined plan. The writing on both sides is set. Nothing can change it. The ink is dry. The plan is determined, but it's mysterious to us. And as the seals are broken, the plan unfolds and becomes clearer and clearer. Until the seals are broken, what's written on the scroll is mysterious. We don't know what it is. And thus it is with God's sovereign plan. We cannot predict it. It's written in the scroll before the foundation of the world. And so Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And so as the scroll, as the seals are broken, uh, the plan of God successively is revealed to us. First, the scroll. Secondly, the angel's proclamation. Look at verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Well, let's look at the nature of this proclamation. The, The task is assigned to a mighty angel. This angel is noteworthy for his immense power. You can hear it in his voice. Because the proclamation is made with a loud voice so it can be heard all across creation it seems. It seems to be meant for everyone to hear. And the proclamation is a question, it seems almost like a challenge. Who is worthy, it asks. Some time ago, I was reading a a version of the legend of King Arthur, and there is in that story a powerful sword, a magical sword maybe, Excalibur, magically stuck in an, an anvil embedded in a boulder, and on that sword is inscribed this caption, Whoso pulleth out this sword of this stone and anvil is rightwise born king of all England. You know that story, the legend of King Arthur. It's a way of qualifying who had the right to rule over England. It could only be done by the true and future king of England. And many in the story come and try to pull the sword uh, out, but no one can do it. But then one day, a young squire, helping his knight, Sir Kay, uh, prepare for a jousting tournament, realized that he had forgotten Sir Kay's sword. It's a big mistake for a squire. So he goes out looking for a sword somewhere. You know how ridiculous that is. If only I could find a sword somewhere that my knight could use in a jousting tournament. But that's how the story, it's a poetic license, just go with it. So he's going out to try to find a sword somewhere. And he finds one sticking in a stone, never seen it before. He thinks, well, that's a good looking sword, as good as any. And without any effort at all, he just pulls it right out of the stone. Brings it to Sir Kay. As soon as Sir Kay looks at it, he recognizes it. He knows exactly what that sword is. Where did you get this? He knew where he got it. So he takes him back and he puts it back in the stone. And then he Sir Kay tries to pull it out but he can't just like always happens. But then the squire is able to pull it out with no effort at all. Of course the squire is Arthur, the future king of all England. Now that's just fantasy, it's myth, it's legend. This in Revelation 5, this is spiritual reality. Whoever can take the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne achieves something far greater than we can possibly imagine. He will be the rightful king not only of England and not only for a few decades until he should die. No, he'll be the rightful king of the entire universe and for all eternity. He will be the king over all kings, the lord over all lords. All right, so that's the nature of the angel's proclamation. What are the purposes of this proclamation? Why does he do it? Why does the angel make this big, loud proclamation? Who is worthy? Well, first, to display, I think, the greatness of the task of taking the scroll and opening its seals. The taking of the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne implies the right to rule over heaven and earth. The opening of the scroll seal by seal implies the right to govern the development of God's redemptive plan is the right to rule over it. And it is God's plan for the redemption of God's elect and the judgment of sinners on earth. It's a a weighty plan. The rights and privileges then of taking this scroll and opening it are greatly dramatized by the pomp and circumstance of the setting and the mighty angel's loud proclamation. So the first reason is to display the greatness of the task of taking the scroll and opening its seals. Secondly... The purpose of the proclamation is to display the disqualification of all creation from this task. After the angel makes his loud, bold proclamation, there is this silence and stillness and it seems failure. Look at verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So this includes every human being, every human being that has ever lived. All of the mightiest emperors, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, or Caesar Augustus, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, all of them disqualified. They're all out. They're not worthy. Or the wisest philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, Descartes, all of the great thinkers of the human Uh, race. They're disqualified, all of them. The greatest scientists and inventors. When I was a student at MIT, there was this ring of honor and names were etched. Big names were for the really big heroes. Smaller for the smaller ones. And you know, you had this ambition. Maybe someday they'll write my name on the wall uh, there at MIT. Some would just go ahead and do it with a spray can. I saw that from time to time. But clearly no honor in that. But these names had been there for a century. Archimedes, Pythagoras, Da Vinci, Newton, Edison, Einstein. Every last one of those great scientists and inventors are disqualified. All of them. Even the humble unknowns. We Christians are more aware of those unsung heroes. The the widow that gives the two copper coins and put in more than anyone else. The great unknowns. the, The ones that we're not aware of. They're not the great names. But all the common people... The humble, the meek, the lowly, the gentle. Yet all of them disqualified. All of them. Even once we get into the godliest names of scriptural history. Such as Abel and Enoch, Job, Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. John the Baptist. The apostles. Peter and Paul. The holy martyrs. Whose blood was shed for the kingdom of Christ. Missionaries who left their homes and their families and made immense sacrifice. Whose children died from tropical fevers and they buried them. And they were there out of love for Christ and out of love for his kingdom. Whose own bodies were broken by their exertions for Christ. All of them disqualified. John himself, the Apostle John, who's receiving this revelation, who's there. Godly apostle. He knows very well he doesn't deserve the honor. He would never have walked forward and taken that scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. would never have done it. So let me get really personal. You and I are disqualified. We are out. We're disqualified. We are not worthy. Every one of us cannot make a move. We cannot stir. We would not be so bold as to walk forward across that heavenly floor and go to the heavenly throne and take from the right hand of God that scroll. We are disqualified. Why? Well, Romans 3.23 says plainly, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are, all of us, sinful. We are disqualified because of our sins. But let me go further. Even the holy angels, who are not disqualified because of their sins. The seraphim in Isaiah 6, who are holy and have never violated any of God's laws and have only passionately served Him with all of their being. They're disqualified. They are creatures. And as we see from Revelation 5, they did not shed their blood to atone for sinners. There's not a man, woman, child, angel, demon, living creature or being of any kind who would have the right to step forward and take that scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Here the entire human race finds its humility... We're simply not worthy to take the scroll. We're not worthy to open it or look inside. Third reason for the proclamation. To heighten John's sense and through him our sense of grief and perhaps anticipation. Look at verse 4. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So John's reacting to this. There's a sense someone needs to do this but there's no one who can do it. And I would say, fourthly, to display ultimately the greatness of Christ. Amen? That's why. It's to put Christ on display. This futile search in heaven and earth and under the earth, all it does is heighten the greatness of the one who actually does boldly stride up and take from the right hand of Almighty God that scroll. The angel's proclamation and the resulting unworthiness of the entire universe heightens the infinite worthiness of Christ as we see in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold the lion. Isn't that powerful? Behold the lion. Of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So we have this lion ...of the tribe of Judah. Now this is a lion who has triumphed, as you can well imagine... ...would have some great appearance, some terrifying display of dreadful, overwhelming power. But we're going to see again and again in the book of Revelation... ...there seems to be a difference between what John hears and what he sees. It's an interesting interpretive theme. And I, I would invite you to, you know, find out again and again... ...the things that he hears and then what he sees... And I think it's really instructive here. He hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Now, do you realize the power of this? The power is, if you had been alive in Jesus' days on earth, what would you have seen? Would you have seen a mighty, eternal lion ruling over heaven and earth and under the earth? No, you wouldn't have seen that. And even more on the cross... As he's dying on the cross, would you have seen glory? Though there was glory there. I don't think you would have seen it unless you had had faith. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We have to be instructed by the hearing of the ear by the word how great he is. If we just see him with the eye, he just looks like a dead Jewish carpenter on a cross. We know the truth, don't we? We know who he really is. And so, in verse 6, we have this shocking word. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. John's conquering hero, the one who has the right, is a lamb. First and foremost, for us, a lamb on the cross. Now, this lamb, we are told later in the book of Revelation was predicted and predestined. He was predestined before the foundation of the world. Revelation thirteen eight calls him the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He was chosen by God the Father for this role to be the lamb before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light. This, this transaction, this covenant between the Father and the Son had been made. He would be the lamb who would die for the sins of the world. And therefore, he was then predicted, having worked out the salvation plan before the world began. And by the way, worked out is human language. God doesn't work things out. Huh, what shall I do? Ponder, ponder. Here's an idea. Maybe not that. That's not the way God thinks. Everything's immediately thought of by God. But we use that human language. He worked out the salvation plan in its entirety to its detail before the world began. Then he predicted it. And through over unfolding centuries of redemptive history, he made prophecies. He made predictions about this lamb who would come and die for the sins of the world. And began uh, in, uh, in Genesis 49, uh, this lion of the tribe of Judah. There's so many prophecies even before that. But look at, uh, don't turn there, but just listen. Genesis 49, as Jacob is blessing his sons, as he's nearing the end of his life, he comes to Judah. The fourth of his sons. But he honors him with this prophetic blessing. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. That's a prophecy of Jesus. That somehow a descendant of Judah would come who would deserve to rule over the nations. Jesus is that lion of the tribe of Judah. He is also called the root of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Again, centuries before Jesus was born. This prophecy, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up to David a righteous branch. A king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. So that's the branch of David. And he'll get this extra name, he is the Lord, he is our righteousness. He is the root of David. So predictive prophecy has identified him beforehand, but especially the animal sacrificial system. And without understanding the animal sacrificial system, we don't understand the lamb who was slain looking as if he had been slain. God established from from the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve, their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked and they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves and God killed an animal and made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and covered over their nakedness. A picture of, of redemption, a picture of imputed righteousness, the gift of righteousness later by Christ, the beginning of the predictive prophecy of animal sacrifice. And it was well established in Jewish history. Noah offered up some of the clean animals after the flood and the fragrant offering went up before God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob offered up animal sacrifices. Moses established it, codified it, put it in the, in the Levitical priestly code that animals would, would be used as sacrifices for the sins of the Jewish nation. And as I've said before, I'll say it again, many of you have heard before, there were three lessons of the animal sacrificial system repeated again and again endlessly through this Levitical priesthood at the tabernacle and the temple. All sin deserves the death penalty. The animal dies, its blood is poured out. Secondly, the death penalty can be paid by a substitute. Because there's an essential transfer of guilt when the priest would put his hands on the head of the animal and confess the sins onto the people. And the animal would die, but the people would go home alive. But thirdly, the substitute cannot be an animal. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away human sin. The whole thing was just a symbol. The whole thing was just a lived out prophecy, a type, a symbol of what would come later. So the lamb was... Predestined, the Lamb was predicted and then at the right time the Lamb was presented Christ was born of the Virgin Mary sinless He grew up lived away from the public eye until He was ready to be presented to Israel and to the world as the Messiah and this happened at the Jordan River where John the Baptist was carrying on his prophetic ministry and he was baptizing uh, people for repentance and water and he saw Jesus coming toward him and he pointed at him and he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world so he was presented to israel for that but then more importantly god presented christ to his human enemies and then to himself for our redemption romans 3:23 through 25 says god presented jesus as a propitiation a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He presented him for death at the human level to the Romans and the, the Jews and the Romans, but then really to himself to pay for our sins. The lamb of God. And then he was the lamb punished. If you look at verse 6, it says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Do you see that? Died. Standing in the center of the throne. Verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God. And then again in verse 12. In a loud voice they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's as though heaven can't ever stop thinking about the death, the bloody death of this lamb. And here is the clear doctrine. The essence of Christ's lamb-like behavior was that he allowed himself to be slain. He permitted it to happen. He laid down his life. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down freely. What a mystery. Almighty God in the flesh, the creator of the universe, more power in his hand than all the power of all human emperors ever in human history multiplied by a billion. That's how much power Jesus had. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable all-power and yet he meekly submits to arrest to an unjust trial to mocking, spitting, beatings, flogging, humiliation down the streets of Jerusalem, the hideously painful death by the cross in full view of the citizens of Israel. How could he be so lamb-like and submit so meekly? How could he behave so weakly? How could he just allow these sinners to mock him while he suffered for others on the cross? And Isaiah 53, centuries before, answers that question, why he did it. Isaiah 53, 5 through 7, it says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the lamb on the cross was actually a lion on our behalf destroying sin, crushing death, tearing apart Satan's dark kingdom as a lion would rip apart his prey. Jesus was as savage as any lion has ever been. But he did it for us meekly as a lamb. This was the lamb's punishment. Not for anything he'd done. He'd committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. But for things that we'd done. For the sins of the world. For the wretchedness of all of God's children who would ever believe in him we see the lambs purchase in verse 9 and they sang a new song you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation this is the purpose of the lamb's sacrifice to make an infinitely costly purchase. To buy sinners out of slavery to sin. Out of Satan's dark kingdom. Out of death and hell. With his blood he purchased sinners. People like you and me. Bought out of slavery by the payment of a blood price. And they were purchased by the price of his blood. And they were to be for God. For God's own possession. These people that were purchased with his blood. From every tribe and language and people and nation. That they would be gods. That he would belong, that they would belong to God. And they were purchased from all over the world. Now, he is a lion on the throne, but still a lamb. Everywhere throughout Scripture, lions are portrayed as terrifying foes. 600 pounds of muscle and ferocity. Utterly fearless. Ponder them. They're totally ferocious, merciless. They dominate everything that surrounds them. They advance and never retreat. They tear their victims limb from limb. Their roar can be heard five miles away. Isaiah talks about a lion. And though multiple shepherds are gathered around and they bang their sticks and yell, the lion's not deterred at all. Not impressed at all. That's what a lion's like. And when they're ready, they pounce and devour and win. That's a lion. Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And look at the triumph of the lion, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Do you see that in verse 5? He has triumphed. He's won a victory. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's just victories conquered like, like in a military victory. A fierce adversary has been defeated, utterly vanquished. And the plunder is his to take. He has earned the right Take the scroll and open its seven seals. And this triumph is nothing less than his triumph at the cross and at the empty tomb. That's the triumph of Jesus. Victory over Satan. Victory over demons. Victory over death and the grave. And I, I like to think of it like in John's gospel when Jesus says, It is finished. As like a victor's cry. Isn't that awesome? It's finished. Everything needed for our redemption is done. The lions roar. From the cross. And the spoils are evident. Verse 7. He came and take the, took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The power of the lion. Verse 6. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is clearly symbolic language. Seven horns. Horns represent kingly power, kingly might. The number seven, a number of perfection and completeness. So this really, I think, is a symbol of omnipotence. And seven eyes, the eye is the lamp of the body with it. The whole body is full of light and, and truth just flows in and we're able to see what's around us. So seven eyes, again, the number of perfection, completion, omniscience. And then the seven spirits of God, as we've said, the sevenfold spirit, I think we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by which Jesus is immediately ministered to individuals all over the world. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus to us the way that Jesus brought the Father to us. And so the Spirit is able to fulfill Jesus' promise to individual members of of the church who are going all over the world to preach the gospel, behold, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. By the Spirit, Jesus does this. This is omnipresence. These are divine attributes. And not only that, look at the position of the Lamb. He's standing in the center of the throne. Who would ever have the right to do that except Almighty God? And here we have the mystery of the Trinity, the Father and the Son, equally God. And Jesus in His position. Look at verse 6. I saw a Lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Almighty God. And this image is actually strengthened later in verse 13 because he's worshipped to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And so the Lamb receives equal worship with the Father, with with Almighty God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, equally worshipped as God. This is a lasting image too. Lamb, not lion. This is a mystery to me. The sermon is perhaps mistitled Lamb on the Cross, Lion on the Throne. The fact is, actually, by my study at least, Jesus is never again called lion in the book of Revelation. Never again. But, fact is, 29 more times he's called the lamb. I find this fascinating, especially since he behaves like a lion through the whole book. He is lion-like over and over and over. Terrifying to his enemies. Multiple verses speak of the throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God and of the Lamb. The throne of God and of the Lamb. We see that again and again. The deity of Christ established again and again. It's always the Lamb. And even when he's doing terrifying things to his enemies, like, like basically ripping the universe to shreds when the sixth seal is open. Revelation 6, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they call to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? They're in terror, but you know, if it weren't so awesome and terrifying, it would be laughable. The wrath of a lamb. Imagine a lamb being really angry. And you're like, wow, what a fierce and terrifying lamb. I need to run for my life. Why such a mysterious and odd phrase, the wrath of the lamb? Well, I don't know. I'm going to say that probably 500 more times in these sermons on revelation. I don't know for sure, but here's a thought: To our enemies, he's nothing but lion. But to us, the elect, his children, he is so tender-hearted, merciful, lowly and meek, he 's like a lamb all the time. In everything he does, he's like a lamb. It's like C.S. Lewis chooses a lion for aslan, but he's always lamb-like in how he interacts. ...interacts with the the Pevensey children. He he always is gentle and tender with them. I think he must have done that... ...because how is he going to have a lamb... ...and then make it act so lion-like? It would be a bit hard to picture. But John goes the exact opposite direction... ...literarily. Chooses always lamb, 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 lamb. Now this lion and lamb is worthy of universal and eternal worship. Look at verse 9. They sang a new song... When he takes that scroll from the right hand, that just starts incredible worship and praise. They sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. The central issue of Revelation 4 is the worthiness of God the creator. You are worthy because you created all things. Now in Revelation 5, you are worthy, Jesus, because you shed your blood. And so he is worthy of worship and the worship just starts to pour and it's just, it just cascades, as I mentioned last week. It just cascades. It starts with the four living creatures. It just, they just worship. And then the 24 elders, and they're holding harps for music and bowls full of incense, and they're just worshiping. And then a 100 million angels surrounding the throne, and they take up the praise. And then every created thing in heaven, earth, under the earth, and the sea, everything that's, that exists takes up the theme and, and joins in. This is universal worship well earned by Jesus Christ. And it's based on his accomplishment. Look at verse 9 and 10. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's why you're worthy. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. So Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection victory, greatest achievement in human history. He deserves to be praised for it. He was slain. And his blood, the most infinitely precious substance there's ever been on earth. Its power to cleanse us of our sins is infinite. There is no sin you have ever committed or ever will commit that the blood of Jesus is insufficient to cleanse you from. It's a precious substance, the precious blood of the Lamb. The power of Christ's ministry is infinite because it changes forever our future. We deserved eternal torment in hell. And instead, he has made us to be kingdom and priests for God. And we'll reign on the new earth, in the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be be a beautiful realm of perfect nature, the eternal home of righteousness. And we will rule like kings and queens under his perfect rule forever. So we have universal and eternal worship. Verse 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. It's universal and eternal worship. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. It will be our privilege to worship Christ for all eternity if we are in Him. For Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God, whose blood atoned for our sins, will be eternally worthy of our praise. So just as I finish up now... Just want to take some brief applications for you. The first is to any of you that are here outside of Christ. Maybe you are here for the baby dedication. Maybe you're not making any claim to even be a Christian. Maybe maybe you're a nominal Christian. You've been going to church but you don't really know him. You You haven't really been walking with him. There is this era of grace going on now. Of amnesty. In which the king is extending to us who have sinned against him. A pardon. Free pardon. To any who will simply repent of their sins, turn away from sins and believe in Jesus. You've heard today the greatness of Christ. You've heard explained substitutionary atonement, the blood. I've proclaimed his resurrection from the dead. You have everything you need. All you need to do is turn away from sin and turn toward Christ and ask him to save you. And he will. For all of you who are Christians, just anticipate. All we did is look through a telescope at Saturn's rings today. That's all we did. We're just looking through a glass darkly. You heard a sermon. You heard exegesis and explanation of words. How much better will it be to see it face to face? When we're no longer looking through a glass darkly, but then at last face to face and see the glory of the resurrected Christ, looking then still like a lamb that had been slain. You're going to see the full glory of Christ. You're going to see the the full display throughout redemptive history and still of his lion-like power. And in your interactions with him, you're going to see just how lamb-like and tender he is toward you. And you'll enjoy that forever. And actually, the two of them go together because you know he could have been a lion to you too. You know that. And therefore, his lamb-like demeanor toward you is all the more precious. Because you know you deserved hell. And instead, he has brought you to heaven. And you're going to have a sense of just how much sin there was in your life. And how much you have been forgiven and freed from it. And how joyful you should be for that. You won't forget it. You'll remember. But it won't bring you any shame or grief or misery. You will just bask in his work for you. And you'll fall down in his presence. And you'll be overcome with emotion. And you'll you'll feel a burning ardor of love for Christ. And an admiration for him. That will only grow and grow over time. And you will worship him. So, thank him now, today, for his sacrificial death for you. I'm sure you've already done that. Maybe even many times today. Do it again. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for giving your blood for me. Thank you. In 1738, Jonathan Edwards preached probably one of the greatest sermons in American history, in my opinion. And he preached it from this text, Revelation 5. It's called The Excellency of Christ. I would urge that you read it. You can read it online for free. And he's just meditating on the whole... Lion and lamb dichotomy. And uh, his doctrine in that Puritan style was there is an admirable conjunction or joining together of very diverse excellencies in Jesus Christ. For example, we see his infinite highness and his infinite condescension. He He has gone through the heavens into the highest ...of the heavenly realms. He has the right to sit at the right hand of Almighty God. That's how high He is. The seraphim cover their faces before Him. That's how high He is. He is high above all things that have ever been created. That's the the infinite elevation of Jesus. And yet, on the other hand... ...He shows infinite condescension. That means He lowers Himself... ...to be with people who are beneath Him. None are so low or inferior but that Christ's condescension doesn't reach even lower still. Now, he delights to be not only with creatures that are perfect and holy like the cherubim and seraphim and all that that never sinned. Yeah, that's a big enough gap to lower himself to interact with them. And they love him. The angels love him. They're there involved in his resurrection. They talk about their de- desiring to look into what he's doing. One of the angels later in Revelation says we're fellow servants with you. They have a relationship with Jesus. But he's lower than that. He comes down and condescends to be with human beings who are flesh and blood. And not only just normal human beings, but some of the lowest of the low. He chose, 1 Corinthians 1, the base things of the world, and the lowly things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. That's the way he is. And for him, you know, in in Christ there's neither barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Those things don't matter. The things that are rejected by the world, Jesus is that condescending that he will... Get down and be with us. Even the little children. We often think of child dedication of the statement that Jesus made when he yearned to have the children come. And you get the picture of him like a piece of, of playground equipment. I always picture that. They're climbing all over him. I don't know if it's true. But that he just loved to be with children. and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. The condescension. The lowliness of it. And, and even that, willing to associate not with innocent people, but with people who are rebels and sinners and had violated his laws. So infinite highness, infinite condescension. You're going to see infinite justice in Jesus. You're going to see it in the book of Revelation how committed he is to exact justice, and yet how incredibly merciful he's been to us. Lion and lamb, we could go on this forever and meditate on it, and we will. And we will spend eternity celebrating this, this lion who went to the cross for us and who, for us, always is tenderhearted, gentle, and patient. I think the more we can meditate on him now, and the richer and fuller our worship is now, the better. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the study we've had today and the, the greatness of the person of Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that you would take this text that we've studied today, And open it up to us. Help us to see with the eyes of faith. Help the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. To see the greatness of Christ. And to esteem Him properly. Help us to be moved, even melted, with how meek and lowly and condescending He's been to us. He who is infinitely above all creation. Help us to be moved by this. And help us to realize He will fight for us as a mighty lion against all of our enemies. And we need fear nothing, but we can rest in his shadow and know that we are protected. But toward us, he's always going to be tenderhearted and gentle and merciful. He is meek and lowly of heart and that we can come to him and lean on him and rest. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom.